Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator. We're dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Everyone else in the media is talking about the horse race in the U.S. presidential election, so we thought we'd do something different and focus on domestic and global trends that are very important but not receiving enough attention. Um, We're going to talk about the overall health of the U.S. economy, the continuing false narrative that the low price of oil is bad for the future, and the increasing evidence that the U.S. will avoid a recession. Uh, Then we'll shift to a global perspective and talk about the much-analyzed Chinese economy and trouble in the European Union uh, with a few interesting solutions. Finally, we'll return to a very common investment that you'll need to be careful with given some of the concerning trends. So, Ronaldo, let's start with the U.S. economy. I understand that reports of a looming recession are greatly exaggerated. (laughs) You've been saying this for months. It seems like the rest of the financial world is finally starting to agree. Yeah, I'm really, uh, you know, it's one of those, I'm so glad to be right on this one. Um, I think that part of why uh, people are starting to wake up is um, the jobs continue to be strong. In fact, uh, the consensus on jobs last month is that we have about 150 to 160,000 net new jobs, and it ended up being 242,000. So this late into the recovery, that would indicate continuing strength. Hmm. Uh, that also comes at a time when uh, 16 jurisdictions have adopted a new minimum wage, which means a tightening of the labor market, which means that these jobs will start to push the, um, the labor uh, component of the cost cycle higher, which is a good thing. So I'm pretty excited because it strikes me that what's going to happen is uh, oh, sooner rather than later, most of the economists who've been um, downplaying the U.S. economy for reasons I don't understand. And maybe it has to do with the politics, you know. Uh, maybe there's reasons that for the political purposes that um, the Republicans want to keep people talking it down. What I don't understand is why the Democrats don't talk it up. But the economy is doing really, really well. Now, just to put that into context from our prior conversations, what we've said is that the economy is going to grow, GDP is going to grow by, we believe, 3% or more in, um, in 2016. Now, if I am wrong by that, if I'm wrong, meaning that the average doesn't work out to be 3% or more, it'll be because my expectation of the kick, meaning the more drive in the second six, second six months, isn't quite as strong as I'm anticipating it could be. And that could be depressed because of the election and other things. But right now, we're poised beautifully in the first three months of the year to hit a 3% or better growth record. And when you consider that the Barron's Roundtable economists were saying 2.5 as recently as you know six weeks ago, it's really a joy to see that people are going to have to recalibrate. And, and I think part of why that's happening, Matt, is I think that people are um, – I, I think that it, self-fulfilling prophecies can often drive the market, but sometimes the fundamentals are too strong. And so what's happening right now – is that the fundamentals, which are all very positive, 
continue to drive the U.S. economy forward. Are there downdrafts because Europe has slowed to zero? Yeah, no question. Are there downdrafts because China's probably slowed from 10 to maybe 6%? Yeah. Uh, are there downdrafts because other countries uh, are not picking up the slack as well as they should? Yeah, Australia being one of them. Yeah, of course, all true. But at the same time, we've been doing this now for about, what, since 2009? So we've had seven years of this. This is like, you know, six, seven years. I think it's 75 months of continuous job growth at this point. It's amazing. 72 is what I have, but it might be 73. Yeah, 72. It's it's in the 70s, right? So my point is that why – there's an interesting question. Why do people choose to believe that it isn't getting better when clearly it is? I find that fascinating question. And I think the answer to it is has to do a lot with politics, number one. And number two, it has to do a lot with who controls the news cycle. And I would say the number one party controlling the news cycle for the last few years is probably the oil and gas industry. Hmm. So the fossil fuel industry is on hard times. So they're crying, poor me, oh, what was me, what was me? You see articles all the time as recently as two weeks ago saying, you know, this is very bad news for the economy that the jobs in the oil patch are going down. And, blah, blah, blah. and they say that even with continuous month-to-month, year-over-year gro- job growth, right? Because yeah. the oil patch jobs that are lost are being overcome by, 200, in this case, 242,000 new jobs in addition to what was lost. So I saw this article, which I mentioned to you, that came out of the, uh, the New Yorker, and it's about this insanity I talked about last month. Why do people think that cheap oil is a bad thing for the economy? And why is it that 90%, 90% of the stock movement in the last few months has been tied to, the, to oil's fortunes? Two reasons. Number one, oil, because it was such a massive part of the investment portfolio of most financial institutions, individuals, trusts, and mutual funds, etc. That, and pension funds, that amount of stock ownership in an industry that has basically begun to collapse. It's, it's like its values are 50% off. That's had an enormous depressive effect on the value of people's portfolios. So that's huge. And in a, a corresponding factor to that is, of course, that they represent a significantly disproportionate large percentage of the, of the S&P 500. So they're disproportionately represented on the Dow and they're disproportionately represented on the S&P 500. When you take the oil stocks out of the equation, all of a sudden the picture looks rosy as the Dickens. And, and, and the reason is people are spending more money. So what's the first thing that we've been seeing? We saw service industries uptick. Now you're seeing uh, clothing, specialty clothing particularly, across the board is upticking. I mean, you're seeing companies um, in, in the youth market like Abercrombie that haven't made money for years that are starting to look like they got some green shoots. Uh, you've got a whole new way of looking at what we think is manufacturing intensive and what isn't. So therefore... What I'm, I'm delighted to report is the fundamentals are strong. And as uh, James uh, Surowiecki said in his, in his New Yorker piece, it's crazy. That right now, lower oil prices are putting, and I'm quoting, an extra $10 billion in the pockets of American consumers every month. $10 billion. Yeah. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about the multiplier effect. When you put $10 billion a month into the consumer pockets, you get about $52 billion worth of total economic growth. So we've been injecting $52 billion into our GDP, and the economists haven't been noticing it. I think they're about to start noticing it. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it sounds like the, there's some optimism again, but it's, uh, it's, it's been behind what you've been saying. You've been saying this. You, you didn't have a whole recession fear uh, bubble as the rest of the uh, economic analysts did. 
you know, I think that cheap oil is a big, a very important piece of it. And I just want to stay on some of the other pieces about the, the health and the economy that we're seeing. Uh, I had one question, which is that unemployment, despite adding, last month we added 242,000 jobs in February, and then an additional 30,000 job revision, additional jobs added in January. Can you talk a little bit about why unemployment stayed flat at 4.9%? Oh, sure. Yeah. And by the way, I, I, are we to come back to increasing wages? Yeah. Next. Okay. So, um, so yeah, the, it's simple. The calculation of the percentage of unemployment is actually a floating number. And to calculate it, you have to take into account people who say they are looking for work, whether they're working or not. You also have to take into account uh, when I say whether we're looking or not, I, some people actually like claiming unemployment. I mean, it's like not a good living, but you can get by. Uh, I don't think that's the majority of the problem, by the way. I think that's the minority of the problem. Uh, the majority of the problem is that people re-enter the labor force when more jobs open up. And particularly that's true if the value of those jobs increases. So as you get an increase in the minimum wage, it will be reasonable for some of our senior citizens, baby boomers like me, to choose to come back into the workforce because it will actually be worth getting out of a chair and going to flip hamburgers if I can get $9 an hour instead of seven fifty, as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the case of Seattle, I can get 15 right, or San Francisco. Um, so I think you're going to see people who may have been on the fringes of, of employment, not actively looking, are going to come jumping in. You're going to see people who were perhaps underemployed changing jobs but not adding to the total number. You're going to see people who um, had left the job market voluntarily or otherwise and are now saying, okay, it's time to get back in. I've been on unemployment long enough. So an uprising market in employment statistics usually brings with it a larger labor force. It's a simple but accurate statement. Mm. And you can't control the speed with which the labor force, quote, grows. All you can do is keep hiring people and see what is left after you've done all that hiring. So we're at 4.9%. We won't be there much longer. It'll, it'll be dropping further. But we're see, at 4.9, and, and, and the closer you get to 4%, the more impossible it is to calculate because there's a certain amount of friction in the economy. In other words, we have this many people employed, and you got people getting hired and getting people fired. The difference in between is probably around 4%. So when you get the closer you get to 4%, the harder it is to move the needle on the percentage drop even though you're advancing the lives of the people who got hired in terms of total gross numbers. Now, that's where I want to segue yeah. into not only are they more people employed by, 400, uh, by 200, uh, 242,000 yeah. in February, but they're getting paid more according to the numbers in January that came out of the wage information. So uh, January, um, wages were up about half a percent. Now, that might not seem like a lot, but you realize if you do that every month, that's 6% in a year in a country that's experiencing about 1% inflation. So we are real wage gain is what that's called. In other words, we, we are now at a, at a half a percent gain in January. We are substantially above the rate of inflation, which means that for the first time, people's real wages are starting to close the gap between the middle class and the rich. And that hasn't happened since the 70s. And you're talking about 45, 50 years that the middle class has been going down. So this is very exciting news. And when I, when I combine it with, um, and I got to, I think Bernie Sanders is 100% right. It's a brilliant strategy to inject $1 trillion into the domestic economy. We've got enough people still unemployed in the construction trades. 
You can't export those jobs because when you build a bridge in America, the guy works in America. When you when you build a hospital in America, the male and female participants in that hospital continue to work in a hospital in America. When you when you fix the the pipes that are delivering lead toxicity to our children, killing them, making. By the way, I want to come back to the lead in a second. But when you do that, when you replace all those pipes, those pipes are being replaced by American workers. So injecting a trillion dollars into the economy will generate about five and a quarter trillion dollars in new economic benefits. So the sooner we get to it, the better. I hope it happens starting January 20th, 2017, maybe even sooner. Um, but that said, I don't know why in the current presidential campaign, people aren't noticing the fact that the economy is doing extraordinarily well. And I, if we want to talk some more about why, I'm happy to do it. But I got to tell you, the U.S. economy is we got a lock on 2.5 percent GDP growth, which was everybody's ceiling. I'm telling you, we got a real shot at going above the 3 percent that I'm predicting. So I'm excited about where the economy is. I'm excited where real wages are. I'm excited that the little guy's finally getting a break, not much of one. And by the way, the big guy's getting richer too because a rising tide carries all ships. The better the little guy does with his half a point, half a percent wage increase, the more money there is for the people who own the means of production at the top to extract even more benefits. The only disconnect in this whole, two disconnects in this whole scenario is the stock market prices, which are overly dealing with the oil issue as if it's a problem instead of an asset. And number two, those people in the oil patch who continue to think that cheap oil somehow is bad for the country when it's great for us. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, what I'm seeing there, and I, w I wonder what your thoughts are on this, a lot of people are talking about the cheap oil's effect on the, uh, the stock price, the stock market. And, you know, the, the article that you were pointing out with the 90% correlation between the price of oil and the price of uh, the stock market, is this a case of financial analysts getting stuck and confusing the stock market with the economy? Yes, absolutely certain. And it's 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 a it's a function of the lemming-like herd instinct of Wall Street, which is, I mean, if 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 nothing else we have learned since two thousand and eight is how unbelievably wrong Wall Street can be, right? And how none of them saw it virtually until it was too late. And for those people who have not seen the movie The Big Short, I strongly urge you to do so. Yeah. Okay. Um, the because the, 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 I think I think it simplified some of the the arcane Byzantine conversation that went on. For those people who were listening to our radio show back then, were we doing the show in eight? No, we weren't. I don't remember. I know I was. I was always on other people's shows, and I was writing a lot about um, derivatives. And you remember me talking extensively about how dangerous derivatives were and how crazy, et cetera. And the big short actually starts to explain how that whole house of cards was so fragile and why Hazel Henderson and I were trying to sound the alarm bell when we did in 2006, 2007, 2008. Of course, then it burst and it almost destroyed the entire global economy. So I, I want to conclude by saying that the herd instinct of Wall Street is equaled in its in – its, um, in, in its ability to distort reality only by the herd instinct of the media. The media is as herd-like as Wall Street. And when you combine those two herds together, you get a completely wrong picture of what's happening, what's likely to happen, or what had even happened in the recent past. So I blame institutional media for doing a terrible job. I mean, where's the media right now? Why aren't they talking about the economy? It's, it, it's the darling of the, of the world. Everybody's looking at our economy. How do they do it? And we're not even talking about it. It's, it's not even happening. We have a 4.9% unemployment rate, and no one's even going, wow, how did they do that? Um, we have a 
really scary situation, which I think we're going to get into in, 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 in the liquidity crisis that could strike the financial markets again. No one's talking about it. No one's talking about the fact that, uh, except, by the way, the recently appointed uh, head of the Fed Bank for, I think, the Minneapolis region, who who, came, who was the uh, assistant uh, the Secretary of Treasury during the, the bailout, who basically came out and said, four square, we got to break up the banks. And this is the guy who saved them. And, and he's absolutely correct. You, you, you've got to... You, too big to fail means too big to continue to survive. Uh, we have not done anything to rein in the banks adequately. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's 100% right on that. I'm glad that uh, Hillary Clinton's following her lead and Bernie Sanders on that. So if we were to rein in the banks, which we should for our own well-being, if we were to take a, a, a better view of the fact that oil is not the business of America anymore, it hasn't been for many, many decades, the future of America is green energy. And it's developing the technologies of the future. And if we would start focusing on that, our stock market would reflect it rather than the, the plight of people who dig up dead dinosaur bodies in the form of liquid carbon. <laughs> liquid carbon. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. And, you know, I'm interested also in the international implications. Uh, if you're ready, I want to, before we, we talk about the liquidity crisis that you referenced, let's save that for the end of the show and talk a little bit about what's going on in international markets uh, starting with this is the today actually we're recording this on March 11th 2016 is the five-year anniversary of the meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants do you want to talk a little bit about that I do and I, I want to open with something that doesn't isn't related but it is so uh, I just I, I was glancing just a few minutes ago at the uh, March 12th which is tomorrow's version of the economist and there's a nice little lead story in there but the prospect of Hinkley Point. Now, Hinkley Point is a very famous nuclear power plant that has been agreed to be paid for by the British government for reasons I cannot understand. And the way they're paying for it is they're agreeing to pay 300% above the current price of power for the life of the plant. Wow. 300%. In return for which a French company has agreed to build, uh, Electricité de France, has agreed to build Hinkley for a price of $25 billion, knowing they're going to get paid 300% over the going rate for electricity. Guess what? The French are going to blink. And you know why? Now, $25 billion would make it the most expensive power plant ever conceived by humans. It's about um, five times more than what a nuclear power plant was supposed to cost as recently as five years ago. It's more than three and a half times as much as it's being spent right now in, uh, in Scandinavia to build a, the latest one. The reason... France is going to cancel that contract is because they don't think they can build it for $25 billion. Wow. I think they That's how, yeah. So, so even with a 300% cushion, they're not going to do it. That's not, and if, we, if that plant gets canceled, um, I believe it'll be the beginning of the end for nuclear globally because we know nuclear is already finished in the U.S. We know it's finished in every intelligent country in Europe. So it's just a question of time. And I believe it will never get the foothold in China that people think it will. And we're going to come back to China in a minute, right? Yeah. Okay. So, because uh, I want to talk about um, coal in China. Um, so, back to the question you were asking, which is, what is the, the, the Fukushima story of the day? And the, here's, here are the headlines. Number one, two days ago, a Japanese court closed only one of two power plants allowed to reopen since Fukushima happened five years ago. Only two have been allowed to reopen. Those fairly recently, within the last uh, three months, one of them was ordered closed because it is clear their safety procedures are still nowhere near acceptable. So one of two left alive, 
now closed in Japan. Yeah. I am so happy about that because Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, who's doing a terrible job managing the economy, by the way, uh, staked his future on the, on the nuclear. And that was a terribly stupid decision. Uh, he's apparently not a very smart guy. Whoever is whispering in his ear, the nuclear industry doesn't know what they're doing. These are the same guys who brought you Fukushima. Second point on Fukushima, five years later, just a week ago, the first two indictments came down against TEPCO executives because they criminally did not do what they said they would do. And as a result, that, that disaster was far worse. Number three about Fukushima, and this is the worst one. There are about a thousand tank, container tanks above ground in Fukushima. What they're doing is they're trying to suck up the water underneath the plant because they've never figured out how to stop the reaction from happening. And by the way, just to scare everybody further, not one of the three reactors, one, two, or three, has ever had their fuel offloaded, meaning they could go off at any time should, the, should water or another earthquake or some intervening event occur. I find that insane. As recently as yesterday, The Guardian out of England published this article saying that TEPCO, the people running Fukushima and most of the Japanese nuclear power, said, TEPCO said, it could take 40 years to, develop, to, to fix the problems at Fukushima, 40 more years. Now, the reason they said 40 is because they didn't they need a number was bigger than 30, was smaller than 50. The bottom line is if you read the article, in fact, if you read every article coming out of Japan, there isn't one plan yet ever been produced, not one, as to how to stop the reaction that's already going on in Fukushima, let alone fix the problem. We actually have a solution at the academy. I'd love somebody to ask me what it is so I can tell them. But at the end of the day, Fukushima continues to bleed a couple of hundred thousand gallons of radioactive water a day into the ocean. Why does that happen? How does it happen? All those tanks I referred to above ground that have been pumping water into it, what they're doing is they're taking – the water comes off the mountains. It comes below the plant, and it goes flowing out to the ocean. As it does that, it sweeps along with the radioactivity. I'll explain how it got there, and it goes into the ocean. They're trying to pump madly to get the water up into tanks before it can actually go flowing to the ocean. First of all, you can't pump a river dry. So you got a river of water, and you're getting a good part of it, but a couple hundred thousand gallons are getting away every day. Number two, they're running out of tanks. they got over a thousand tanks. They're all full. Literally, they're all full. I just sent you a picture of it a little while ago. Number three, and this is the best part, they still don't have any idea of where the precise nuclear reaction is occurring, which is causing that contamination. That's the craziest part. There's a yeah. quote here that says, to be honest, we don't know exactly where the fuel is and have, right. and have to carry out more studies, was what right. he said at a recent briefing. Yeah. But we so do that, know that the fuel is in a solid state of cold shutdown, as he, he's claiming. That's not true because the fuel, uh, here's what happened. He's, he's referring to the fuel in reactor one. Reactor two and three have not broken containment vessel, I don't think yet. So we're all talking about reactor one here. In reactor one, what we know for a fact happened is that, there, that it melted down. It went through the reactor vessel, the container vessel. We know it went through the concrete apron below that vessel. And we know that it chewed its way into the earth. Now, the nature of a nuclear reaction is such that until you stop it, it continues going forward. Because the, the, the fuel reacts with itself. For, for them to say that, that it's cold is a blatant lie. It is absolute blatant lie. And the reason it's got to be a lie is what would have cooled it. If it's cold because so much water is coming off the mountains that it's keeping it cool, like putting water on a, well, you, you got a heck of a problem because that's the water that's going out to the ocean. It's a couple hundred thousand radioactive 
water every day. And, and I don't believe it's cold because if it was, I don't believe we'd have as much radioactivity as we've got now going in the ocean. And you've heard me say this before on the show. Um, they've now looked at uh, cesium-137, uh, cesium I believe, is the tracer element, radioactive isotope they're looking at. And they have now seen every single bluefin tuna caught in California has a Fukushima cesium-137 marker. Now, that doesn't mean that they're so toxic they glow in the dark. It just means that every single one of those fish has encountered radioactivity in the Pacific Ocean from Fukushima. That's wow. pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very scary. So, so did I mention that two guys got indicted finally? Yeah. Okay. Two guys get indicted. The plant's still leaking like crazy, a couple hundred thousand radioactive gallons a day. They've got no plan, none whatsoever, to how to stop the reaction, no plan as to what they will do if another earthquake hits, no plan as to how to unload the second radio reactors two and three. None of these plans exist. Hmm. Actually, Academy has a plan for all of it, but no one's asked us. Uh, I hope that someone does. But they, at the end of the day, Japan has made a complete disaster to this. Now, I'll ask one question. Why is the International Energy Agency, or the International Atomic Energy Agency, not on this, like, like a cheap suit in the rain? I mean, why are they not driving? When the whole world's being affected for five years, our oceans are being polluted with radioactivity, and the International Atomic Energy Commission has done nothing and continues to let the same people who caused the problem tell you they have no plan for solving it, but they don't take away the authority to do it. I think it's time the international governments, through the United Nations, say to Japan, clearly you can't handle this. If you could have, you would have. You've had five years. So it's our ocean, too. And we're going to take it off your hands. You better let us. Because, frankly, if you don't, it's only going to be worse for Japan. Yeah. Well, let's stay over in the uh, east and talk a little bit about China, Ronaldo. Uh, people have been saying it's weakening, and they're pointing at their imports being down. Uh, what do you think about the Chinese economy? Yeah. Chinese economy is going to be – will grow at twice the rate of the U.S. economy this year. That ain't so bad. Literally. It'll go – it'll be 6% or better. Now – are there weaknesses in the economy of China? Absolutely. One of the weaknesses is that construction is just on its butt. Um, they were making way too much steel. They got steel plants closing. They got construction workers that are out of work. They've got way too many housing units. They don't know what to do with all their housing units. In fact, the, the, the latest thing is that the, the Chinese government is trying to encourage all the people who move from the country to take jobs at the factories to buy houses in the cities, even though they didn't want to live in the cities because they got so many housing units, dwelling units, high-rise apartments typically. It's pretty funny that they want the migrants to buy houses. They're giving them zero-interest loans. They're doing all kinds of things, trying to sop up the, the, the excess stock. Mm -hmm. So there are problems. But let's take that reduction of import, for example. I believe the, uh, this uh, it's down like 14% uh, or some number like that. It sticks in my head. Uh, uh, their, their, their import growth was down 14%. Well, we happen to know for a fact that there was a miracle that happened in China in 2014. And that is China burned less coal in 2014 and 15 than it did in any prior year meaning it peaked up in coal burning. Huge amounts of that coal were coming from Australia, some from India, but mostly from Australia. And that's what's really hurt Australia, is that they're not selling all that coal to China. In a similar vein, Australia is not selling a lot of minerals that would go into steel, for example. So all that mining, those, those mining industries, have been hurt badly in Australia, and they're no longer shipping to China in such volumes, which would bring automatically bring down the import number in China in a good way. At the same time, China has been accelerating its conversion to uh, 
to windmills. It's accelerated its conversion to solar. So China's really leading the way faster now even than Europe in conversion. And since it's peaked out in coal purchasing, it's quietly entering the new green technology space. And I don't think it wants people to notice that, but that's part of why its import numbers are down. Its export, export numbers, which are down 19%, are a direct reflection of the fact that they can't sell into Europe when Europe is barely surviving. Right. And they've, they've reduced their sales into the U.S. because their dollar is so strong. But, but nothing fundamentally wrong. I mean, it's going to grow at 6%. And, and by the way, I, I was looking recently. How much of the $3.4 trillion of reserves, $3.4 trillion, has China lost this total year? It's a couple hundred billion. And in fact, the most recent month was only $24 billion. So you're talking about chump change. You, know, you, you, can lose, you can lose $24 billion a month for the next 30 years and still have plenty left for $3.4 trillion. So it's a non-starter. It, 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 China doesn't have – China's problems are political. China's problems are it's afraid to really, really reform its economy because they don't want to give up command and control. So China's economy is going to always have difficulties, and eventually there will be a reckoning. But it's way in the future. And China's got at least all of this year and next year where – I can't predict next year yet. I can tell you they will end up this year at at least 6%, I think. And I'll be shocked if they drop below 4% next year. And they might even hit 4 to 5 Because what they're doing is they're converting to a consumer economy. And to do that requires a tremendous agility, more than people thought China was capable of, but it appears that they are. Well, that's good news. And again, that's also something that a lot of uh, analysts wouldn't agree with, but that's, that's why it's important to listen to this show. Um, Ronaldo, let's let's move now to the EU and talk about the EU banks that are out there uh, that you're concerned about. Well, it's no secret that the EU never did the stress testing. Well, never never stress tested, but they never compelled their banks to clean up their balance sheets the way they got cleaned up in the U.S. The U.S. did do a better job of that for a bunch of reasons. But uh, so what, basically, our banks are in pretty good shape here in America right now. Um, they're still too big to fail, which means they're too big to exist. And we can come back to that. I mean, I'm really strongly in favor of banking reform. But, um, but the, the problem in Europe is much more pervasive. Europe did not take the deep dive that it has to. It hasn't written off anywhere near the amount of debt it has to. So those banks are, are, are in shaky condition. And, and they're not going to be able to relend as easily as they can in the U.S., which means there's going to be a break on – B-R-A-K-E, on um, additional uh, financial developments in Europe. So you got a weaking ba- weak banking sector. You got Europe as a whole probably going at zero rate of growth, maybe one-tenth of one percent, but it's flat. Um, you got tremendous crisis dealing with the immigrants, and I want to come back to that because I think there's a solution there that will help Europe and help the migrants. Uh, and I do think refugees is a better word than migrants, frankly. Um, so you got all these, 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 these very deep issues, and then you've got the British seriously talking about uh, Brexit or British exit from, from the European Union, which, by the way, I think uh, – and, and it was – I don't think he meant to say it, but, the, but Carney, Mark Carney, the head of the Bank of England, actually uh, said publicly, got cr- criticized for it, that if they were to exit, it would be a disastrous for the economy, which it would be. I mean yeah, the yeah, British yeah. would – Oh, the UK will get hurt badly. I mean, that that would be the end of the UK. I mean, if you want to know what will be the end of the British Empire, that'll do it. 
That'll do it. It'll finally be over at that point. That would be real. You'll actually know the exact date the British Empire ended. You won't be wondering, was it when they left India or not in 47? So why, why is that? Because they would no longer be a part of the common market and would lose. Yeah, because look, like England is a very business. small. England's a small island. It, it does not have the ability uh, in the global economy to be effectively uh, its own economy. It's just too small and it has too many big forces arrayed against it. Its best interests are in having a completely open border with Europe and having no uh, taxable transactions between them. I'm involved in a couple of companies that have a base in Europe, in England, because of the common language and the, and the, and the capital system in London. But we, we, all those advantages would disappear instantly if we weren't also able to get free access to markets in Europe. The population's in Europe, it's not in the UK. And the UK is, a, is kind of a backwater country uh, if you if, if you think of it in terms of the global stage. Now, what's, what's helped it tremendously is its education level. Uh, the UK has tremendous education, uh, and, and particularly advanced education at the university level, postgraduate. It has a very highly defined sense of its judicial system. It has a very, very well-defined legislature. It even has a process, although I don't fully understand it, that seems to work for them with the House of Commons screaming at the prime minister. <laughs> but that, too, seems to work over time. What it doesn't have is it doesn't have population. It does not have massive resources, natural resources. It does not have a highly liquid marketplace. It doesn't have the ability to create goods and services in volume for a population base that small. So it has to create them for Europe. It is really, it, it's the toll booth to Europe. And, and in that capacity, it makes a great deal of sense. Without that, I think the UK would be in trouble. So let's talk a little bit about the the uh, refugee crisis that's going on and some of the EU's moves to try and stem the tide. Um, you know, w right now they're negotiating with Turkey and essentially trying to bribe Turkey into into slowing the flow or cutting it off. Is that right? Actually, I prefer to think of it as Turkey's extorting them and they're agreeing to go along with the extortions. And I don't think um, Europe was offering. I think Turkey's been extracting. Yeah, I think it's a terribly stupid idea. I think that Erdogan, uh, who is a uh, a tyrant at best, who's been uh, waging a battle against his own Kurdish minority, who's been dropping bombs on the only good ally we have in Iraq, the Kurds, just because they're related to the Kurds in his country, not even the same Kurds. Um, uh, he's stifled dissent in his own country. He's converted a country that was under Ataturk as its founding was a intentionally very thought through. They really looked at and said, we don't want to be an Islamic Republic. We want to be a um, neutral as to religion and ideology. We do not want to be a theocracy. And Erdogan is pushing it towards a theocracy, towards an Islamic Republic, and is doing that in a way that's stomping on the rights of his own people and everybody around him. For him to then send a bill to the EU saying, give me two to three billion more, accelerate my entry into the European common market, which frankly... Why would you take a guy who's a tyrant and want to invite him into the clubhouse? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, they're doing that because of this. They're afraid of the two million people that are already there. There are two million refugees in Turkey. They don't want them to get into Europe any deeper, and they don't want to have any more come through Turkey. And they're afraid to let them go back to Greece, which, as you know, on the Greece-Macedonia border today, there are 10,000 people that are occasionally clashing with the police. Those clashes are going to get worse. 
So my solution, and I, I want to take a second to lay this out because I'm convinced this is the right decision. So before we go into that, let me just add a little more color. I, I actually spoke with a friend who's who is going to Turkey in order to help with the, the refugee crisis. Um, she's just been inspired by it. She Last, uh, over Christmas break, she was on the island of Lesbos, yeah. where the, the boats that from the Turkish, uh, or from the refugees who can afford to get smuggled essentially into Greece, they get on a, a rubber dinghy and, and make the crossing. Um, that is an amazing and horrifying scene in a lot of ways because people are getting pulled out of the ocean, or, or some are not. And drowning on their way over, but like Turkey, a th- like a three year old boy on the beach, and that was the one that catalyzed the conversation finally about what's going on over there. Uh, but it, it's happening all the time, and you know, women are showing up nine months pregnant and giving birth as as they get out of the boat. Uh, the the really scary thing though is that those refugees that are making it to to Greece are the ones with enough resources to get there, but there's two million, like you're saying, stuck in Turkey with no money. And are essentially sitting there uh, with nowhere to go, and, and, and it's a big problem to figure out what to do with them. So, a- any suggestions are welcome, I'm sure. So let's uh, let's hear what you're thinking. Okay, so Greece is a financial basket case. Everybody knows that. We we talked about Brexit and the Greece situation ad nauseum. There is no conceivable way. Not even there's. I, I've never even heard of a fiction. Every anyone seriously propounded as to how Greece could pay back its debt. It cannot happen. There's just too much debt, and there's no conceivable way you can continue to squeeze that economy and get it somehow to pay more back. In other words, the uh, austerity, as we now know in every country it's been tried, is a wholesale failure, and Greece has the worst case of it of anybody. They're being pushed to a level of austerity that has an unemployment rate of 50%. Compare that with 4.9 over here. That's why I can't understand why aren't people talking about our economic miracle. Okay, how can you fix Greece and deal with the refugee crisis all in one fell swoop? Very simple. What you do is you say to the Greeks, why don't you start building villages? You're very good at that. Okay? They have a good construction industry in Greece. Why don't you build these low-rise villages, 25 to 50,000 people apiece, put them in the countryside, let the people uh, work as uh, day laborers uh, in the fields so they can help grow their own agriculture. The amount of money that will create in Greece, growing food, which by the way will be paid for, so instead of giving 2 to $3 billion to Erdogan, Give two to three billion directly to construction of villages in Greece, directly to growing food in Greece, and, and stimulate the Greek economy with that two to three billion. And then in every single one of these villages, have a, have a training facility. Now, for those people who missed it, last week there was a great article about Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, and how he started an academy in Berlin for Syrian refugees. And what they're learning is computer programming. What Zuckerberg correctly understood and what the German government has understood is they desperately need young people who know how to program, particularly in Germany. So they're delighted to get graduates out of this program. They can't get them fast enough. I would argue that every school, every, every village that I'm articulating that Greece should build, every single one should have an education center, not unlike a junior college in America. And that city college or junior college, if you will, will be training people for those occupations for which there is a demand in Europe today. Let me list a few of them. Computer programmers, we can't get enough no matter what we do. So, And by the way, some very smart people who were programmers of their own in Syria before they fled are in those camps. Yeah. Number two, you should, talk to, you should talk about the idea of healthcare workers. Germany is getting older and older, as is Italy and France. They do not have enough young people to take care of their aged population in nursing homes and hospitals. So medical workers, and particularly ones with a geriatric um, concentration, which doesn't exist yet. Third, 
Uh, Europe's getting very old. We built Europe in 1945 through 1955. So we're getting to the point now where Europe needs some rebuilding. And you got very young, physically strong people who have been refugees who could be part of that construction force. You have a whole series of new industries that could be born because every time what we learned in America, which in the United States is the number one country in the world all these years that welcomed migrants. It's, it's quite remarkable that we are now you know, closing the gate. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, the quote at the, at, at, at the base of the Statue of Liberty. You know, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. These, the tempest talk, deliver unto me. So that we would close our port, our harbor, to, to migration is, to me, unthinkable given that we are a country of immigrants. But now apply to the logic to Europe. What if it would do what we did right? What if it would embrace a wave of immigrants? Well, then you'd have a, a Syrian community. Uh, it would have Syrian shopkeepers in each of these villages. And you'd have the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. And over time, some of them would go to other parts of Europe because their skills were in demand. So if you're training computer programmers in a village in Greece, there's no problem getting them a job in Germany or, frankly, Lithuania or Slovenia or Slovakia or any other place. And the same thing is true with healthcare workers, um, properly trained construction workers. Uh, there are certain types of workers in some key industries. If you go through the, the want ads in America today, you'd be amazed at how many technical jobs have gone unfilled today. And we're at 4.9% unemployment. We still can't get enough technical workers. So I see a community college in each one of these villages of 50,000 people. I see the Greek economy being rebounded as a result of this. We don't have to deal with Turkey at all. And I see Greece left with a tremendous amount of infrastructure when this wave is over, if it ever ends. Now, let's say it doesn't end. Let's say that the wave of refugees from Syria, which is huge, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, let's say that that's only 1% of the problem, that the other 99% is climate change. When the climate refugees start hitting European shores, which they will, and they'll be coming from Africa as well as the Middle East, what are you going to do then? We need to develop a system now for how we can house and transfer those people into stabilized, environmentally safe environments. Okay? We've got to have an integration technology, and this opportunity with the refugees is our way to build that system, which I believe starts at a village level. Hillary was right. It takes a village. So we need to build villages. And the best thing that could happen is we'll have built them. And in 20 years, all the people have moved on to better jobs. And they'll be empty. And that'll be just fine. We'll think of something else to do with them or we'll bulldoze them. However, if it gets worse, as I think it will, we will have developed a prototype that we'll use not only for the 2 million that we've already got, but for the 20 million or more that are coming. Yeah, and it'll be an example, too, for Asia, which will, could be dealing with very similar refugee crises associated with uh, climate change. Yeah, well, the Asians, they got a bigger problem, which is um, I think that they're going to have they're going to have a political resistance to change that will cause them to be in. Uh, I think that the violence that will accompany climate change issues in Asia could be much greater than the violence that will accompany it in Europe. But we'll see. So we haven't talked about Saudi Arabia, but we do have some time if you want to. Sure. I mean, the short version is Saudi's in deep problems, deep, deep yogurt. I, 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 I don't know if it'll ever come out of it. Um, you know, because I, of the low price of oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, just let me start with the oil. I believe the high end price, though. So we're at thirty seven dollars a barrel today. We got as low as twenty seven, which I think was a little too low. 
we're overproducing oil today at about a million gallons a day, a million barrels a day, more than we are consuming. So everything that can float and hold oil has been consigned to do that. Old freighters that haven't had anything to do for 30 years are basically sitting at anchor, but, you know, full of oil. So they, they, they continue to try and store more and more oil offshore because everything onshore in the U.S. is full. And my suspicion is everything onshore in Europe is full as well. Clearly, everything in Asia is full. So what do you do when you keep pumping up out of the ground one million barrels a day more than you use? You run out of storage space. That causes the price to drop. If people believe that the storage problem is only going to get worse, the price will drop further. If they think something's going to happen to turn it around, the price of oil will probably go up. So what are the two things that could happen, the market says, to cause the price of oil to go back up? The first thing people say that could cause the oil price to go back up is if Russia and Saudi Arabia make an agreement, which they've talked about, to limit the production of oil to January levels. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, because in January, we were overproducing by a million barrels a day. So why would you want to stay at a million barrels a day too much indefinitely? Clearly not a good idea. Number two, Iran hasn't even started pumping. is going to pump like crazy. So you're going to be at two million barrels a day before you know it. So that's not going to help you at all. So that's one thing that's going to continue to put extraordinary downward pressure on the price of oil. The other thing that will put upward pressure on the price of oil is the U.S. fracking is a very interesting phenomenon. So U.S. fracking, um, when you frack a well, unlike a traditional oil well, uh, when you put an oil well in the in offshore, the Gulf of Mexico, or you put it on land, you get a curve that looks like this where you, get, you, know, you start producing and then a big bell-shaped curve and it slowly slides off and it goes on for several decades, two to three decades. Fracking doesn't work like that. Fracking, you exploit the, explode the cavern underground. You get a, a huge rush of oil that comes up. And it very quickly goes away. I, I heard a statistic that a fracked oil well, on average, has to be replaced every six to 12 months. Now, I don't know if that's true, and I'm not ready to say it, it is true yet. I'm going to do some more research. But it's in that order of magnitude. It's not decades, okay? So what's happening is, as the fracked oil wells in the U.S. go dry, and because we're not doing hardly any more fracking right now, very little fracking is going on in the U.S., that will push the price of oil up because the U.S. component, which was up as nine... 9 million barrels a day, I think, that component comes, starts to drop as the fracked wells drop. Now, it won't drop completely because we have plenty of offshore. We have plenty of other wells. But the fracked wells, which were the decider in this, they tip in favor of, okay, less oil is going to be around. Smart money saying, so if the fracked oil keeps dropping off and they don't start fracking again, I guess it means the price of oil will ultimately go back up. Mistake for this reason. It's now clear, and I'm quoting the Association of the Petroleum Institute, APA, API, American Petroleum Institute. I'm quoting almost every knowledgeable observer in the oil patch. You can bring a fracked oil well back online when oil hits 45 to $47 a barrel. So we now know what the upper price of oil is. It's 45 to 47 because at that point you start fracking again in the United States. And as soon as you start doing that, you glut the oil market. That brings the price of oil down less fracking, and that will continue on. Until, over time, our conversion of the planet to green energy causes the global aggregate demand for oil to continue to drop, which it will. So even that, um, if you think of it as, um, I mean, you can't, I mean, the viewers can't, but if you, if you think of it as a graph, it goes like this, up and down, up and down, but where the regression line is upward, 
That up and down swing, fracking, no fracking, fracking, no fracking, will keep the price of oil in a 30 to $47 range. But that will only work as long as the regression line is pointed up. When the regression line flat, flat lines or plateaus up, which it's starting to do, then even that up and down swing won't be enough. And you'll see it move into where the price of oil could drop as low as, say, uh, $27 to $30 a barrel. Still have 47 as the max. Can't go higher. And it could stay there indefinitely till oil is replaced as its as the primary uh, energy source of the planet. Well, that sounds like does, good news. Well, it's good news, but it's bad for Saudi Arabia, which is the question. Right. So Saudi Arabia's got a world of hurt. I don't see how it can get out of it. I don't think I don't see how Russia gets out of it either. By the way, I think Russia is going to go into a period within three to five years of social instability. I think you're going to see that within five years of Russia. I think you're going to see that uh, you're going to see that uh, in Saudi Arabia within the same time frame. And, and Saudi Arabia is a lot weaker in a lot of ways than Russia. Uh, so I, I, I think Saudi Arabia is in a world of hurt. And, so, and, you know, the evidence is that they've now done two bond issuances, never did that before. They've been bleeding the sovereign wealth fund to pay for their social state because they basically have a lot of benefits that they can't afford. And they've got a, the new crown prince seems to be more aggressive than his father was, candidly. So, you know, even the small reforms they were making with women uh, have been turned around in the last couple of months. Hmm. I, I just think Saudi Arabia is a step out of time. Yeah, and their overhead is so high that when their revenues crash like that, they're in, they're in serious trouble quickly, right? Yeah, and they've also got the problem. Remember, they're a theocracy. And they, they made a deal with the devil, literally, because they agreed to support the most conservative elements of the Muslim religion, the Wahhabi sect, in return for which they got support for the House of Saud, the monarchy. Uh, that works great when everything's rising. And when it isn't rising, you now have a, another force in society, the theocracy, which will, I think will take will be the, be the way that the House of Saudi actually gets taken down. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see something like Iran happen in Saudi Arabia. So let's pivot Meaning back. Meaning Islamic fundamentalists. Yeah, an, an Islamic takeover in a long period yeah. of Islamic yeah. fundamentalism. Yeah. Um, so let's pivot back and talk a little bit about Third Avenue management and uh, mutual funds in general. Um, what what are, what is a mutual fund? Can you talk to our our listeners about that? Yeah. So a mutual fund is a uh, a thing you buy a share of, not because it's like buying a stock at Ford Motor Company or General Motors. You're buying a share of a bunch of other shares. So if I'm a mutual stock fund, what you're buying into is a mutual fund of stocks. Right? So it's a like, basket of stocks. It's a basket. Thank you. It's a basket of stocks. Uh, same thing was true with bonds. And then the type of fund determines what's in the basket. So if it's a, uh, a fund that's designed for high growth, you'll have riskier stocks and higher opportunity for appreciation. If it's a uh, conservatively one, uh, managed one, it'll have uh, you know, very pedestrian returns, but safe and, and, and reliable. Um, and what's, what's really bringing this up is in October of last year, there was a lot of publicity around the fact that the head of the SEC, uh, Mary Jo, decided that she was going to put some oomph behind changing the rules governing mutual funds. And the fear was that mutual funds weren't staying liquid enough, mm. that like the banks that we had to bail out in the last crash, we'd end up having to bail out uh, mutual funds. A at the time she said that, I think mutual funds were probably about 37% of the invested capital in America. That's a wow. huge amount. Okay. So, so thirty-seven percent of invested capital in America is in these mutual funds, which are essentially 
baskets of other stocks, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, they're, and they're, one, of the, one of the things that is great about them or the reason people use them a lot is because you can immediately get your money out whenever you want. Is that right? Right. That's the, that's one of the principal advantages of a mutual fund is liquidity, meaning you can get the money out when you want it on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, stop here for a second and look at the complexion of the fund is determined by what its investment policy is, which will then determine its yield, its safety, and its liquidity. All those things are interrelated. But what was supposed to be like catechism, like basic, beyond everybody's got to follow this rule, no matter what the type of fund, is that liquidity question. The idea that you, you, you cannot ever take my money as a mutual fund and not be able to give it back to me in a day or two. So no matter what your investment policy is, which determines what's in the basket, the concept of the basket structurally is you've got to be able to get out your money if you want to get out. That's called liquidity. Now, it's very important to note, this is not derivatives. Okay? Derivatives are much worse. Derivatives are where you're betting on a bet on a bet, like in, in, in the short, you know, the great short. Um, but if you have a situation where the basket is constructed in such a way where the risk cannot be um, dealt with in the, in the face of declining values, you will have what happened to Third Avenue Management. And what's amazing is Third Avenue Management went down this is a $26 billion fund. We're not talking about Joe's hot dogs yet. And when you've got $26 billion under management, that's a decent-sized operation. And they went down, literally, in December, not more than two months after Mary Jo was talking about, you know, we've got to be careful of mutual funds. So it started to unravel already. It will get worse, by the way. And the pressures in the market only make it more likely to get worse. So clearly, mutual funds need to be reformed. They're the principal, vac the principal way that huge percentage of the American population invests its money. Uh, by the way, they're not all bad. Uh, as you know, listeners of the show know I'm a big fan of First, uh, First Affirmative Financial, which is a financial advisory group that does not give us any revenues, uh, is not involved with us uh, commercially, but basically that uh, runs, I think, a series of great funds. I mean, it doesn't run them, it, it invests in great funds. Uh, and I think it's because of their investment philosophy that they didn't have any money, as far as I know, in um, in, in, in uh, Third Avenue management. But what happened with Third Avenue management is they literally, people went to get their money back and they said, sorry, can't give it back to you. And to this day, I think a whole bunch of them are sitting there trying to get their money out. Hmm. And so you think that that could be a problem industry-wide or is this contained with thir in Third Avenue management? Say it again? But Do you third think Avenue? that's a problem that could be industry-wide in mutual funds or are there a number of other ones that might be uh, problematic? That's what the, it sounds like the SEC is saying. The SEC said before Third Avenue had the crisis, that precisely that. They said that the, the problem with the mutual fund industry was it's had a liquid, it needed to change its liquidity ratios. Right, so which it needed is, to keep more cash on hand, essentially. Yeah, or, or have a strategy for how to liquidate if they needed to. The, the banks in 2008 got caught because they had too little capital for the amount of debt. So the ratio was wrong. And what they're saying in the mutual fund industry is you've got a similar problem. You've got too little liquidity for the amount of money you tied up. So we want to increase the liquidity reserve so that we know if your guy comes to you and says he wants his money back, you can give it to him or her. Now, they made that conclusion. That was, by the way, something was coming out of the industry for at least, gosh, that, that, that rule was getting kicked around for at least a year before Third Avenue went down. So the, the SEC was on it this time. They saw the problem. They were sounding the alarm bell, and the first one hit. Do I think others are imminently about to go? No, not en masse. 
But I think confidence got shaken when Third Avenue went down. And I think that there are funds that are heavily loaded with oil stocks that are going to have some problems. I think there are regional banks that are going to go down because they have too much oil investment. There's a lot of people going to get hurt on the oil collapse besides oil companies. But as a general rule, if you're not in the oil patch and you didn't lend money to the oil patch, you're probably okay. In fact, you're probably going to do better. Anyway. Apologies. There's a storm behind me. So if you hear that happening, it's just uh, everything's okay. It's just the wind whipping around outside my window. Okay. Um, Ronaldo, I think with that, I, I wanted to see if you have any closing thoughts. We have a, a couple minutes left, but uh, anything on your mind right now? Well, the, the, the biggest thing is um, I really want to see people start supporting the show. Um, you know, if they go back in time and we're consistently right month after month after month, and, and, and that's worth a lot of money to people. And if people are taking our advice and, and, and protecting themselves financially or just learning how to live better and more successfully in the world by listening to this show, uh, I think they need to support us. I'm, I'm really, I really want to see people start signing up to our $25 a month program. And um, I also want to see people start taking our Optimus Daily service. Do you want to talk about Optimus Daily for a second? Yeah, sure. So the Optimus Daily is a, uh, a service that is focused on bringing solutions news to anyone who's interested. Uh, and people who aren't interested actually should give it a try also. You know, it, it changed the way I thought about the world by uh, essentially signing up for an email. And in that email, you receive five headlines from around the world for free uh, of, of news that's collected that's focused on uh, what's going right in the world. Um, people can sign up for that on our website, and I'll include a link in the email that goes out about this show. But it really did change my outlook and uh, start to help me be more optimistic uh, you know, it reports on solutions in climate change policy, uh, gun uh, gun safety, uh, reductions in violence, and alternative energy. What, what else? I mean, and, and then it also goes all the way to the personal. You know, healthy eating and uh, ways to take care of your 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 future health by uh, changing your diet and stress management practices and meditation. It's really useful information too. It's not it's not uh, woo woo or or airy fairy it's very very focused on uh science and, and real solutions yeah and just i'm looking at today's for example so the lead story today is there's a new breast cancer treatment that's just been uh documented that has phenomenal uh cure rates and and you can read more about it and the way optimus daily works and we'll give it free to anybody that wants it just write us and tell us you want to get it we'll get you right away to a free a free copy every day and you'll learn about this incredible trial that came out of London for cancer drugs on breast cancer. Um, and literally the doctors were stunned when they found cancers disappearing or shrugged so dramatically that they decided to tell the whole world before they waited any longer. Uh, 11 days after the trial started, they made that decision. Wow. So you get, you get these 75 word summaries. And then if you want to click to get the whole article, you can see where it came from. Um, you, 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 you get all these different really great, um, you know, like what is a high tech bean, so-called magic beans, and why should you care? Um, yeah. What about bacteria that can eat plastic and is doing so? Um, what about the EPA limits on methane emissions from gas and oil facilities? And, and why did that come up as part of the president's private conversation and then public remarks with uh, Trudeau uh, yeah, last you know, night? One that I identified too, Ronaldo, that we talked about, we didn't get to on the show today, but you know, there's a story that says essentially that solar panels are the future of electricity in Gaza. Solar provides energy independence to Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, you know, the, the potential for all of these these 
shifts that we're talking about happening in real life reported every day. So if you like if you like the content of this show, you're you're going to really like the content of the daily reading that the optimist will give you. Oh, you'll love it. And, and it takes five minutes and you're up on a whole bunch of things. For example, this is one that I find fun. I'll quit here. So I tend to criticize the Japanese a lot because I think they've done a lot wrong for over 20 years. So it's a long time to be wrong. I mean, you would think after 20 years they start to get it right and they still haven't. And they elect a guy like Ebe who's like backwards. And that's why their economy continues to slide backwards for 22 years in a row. Now, having said that, today, or was it? No, it was a month ago, they launched the Honda Clarity, which is a really great hydrogen car. Okay, in the same country that's all screwed up with nuclear energy, they're on to the future with the hydrogen revolution. And by the way, Toyota cars are already available in America, as are, are Hyundai. So you, you, you wouldn't know about this stuff. Um, you wouldn't know uh, about all the ways that uh, Honda is working with General Motors on fuel cell manufacturing and procurement. You wouldn't know about new grid storage technologies. You wouldn't know about a hundred different things I can tell you every single time. And it, there's only five stories a day that's the lead. Take those five stories. You'll be amazed at what you learn, and you'll be so grateful because you go, oh, I had no idea this positive solution exists. Great. Well, yeah, and, and I'll include a link to sign up for The Optimist in the email that this uh, show comes in. Um, yep. And, and Ronaldo, I just want to thank you. And on, on behalf of the World Business Academy, to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. And tune in ne- next month for the next and, episode of New Business Paradigms. And, and, and please, if you can afford 25 bucks a month, and almost everybody can, please become one of our associate members. Help us keep the show on the road, on the air. Help us keep doing the good work we're doing in the world of energy and the good work of corporate governance. We, we need your help. We need, we need this to be more of a movement and less of uh, a couple of us, Matt I and some other brave souls. We, we really need to be willing to all work together to create the future we want, not to avoid the future we fear. Thank you very much, Ronaldo. Thanks. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.